You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. Everybody drinking blood, everybody eating brains Some monster party Everybody eating flesh, everybody breaking bones Some monster party Thank you so much for listening to episode 7 of Where is the Line? With me this evening, for the 7th consecutive time is my friend Jamie. Say something disturbing, Jamie. Be a good boy, Kevin. <laughs> That's a deep cut. <laughs> when you eventually hear the phrase, be a good boy, honk your horn. It's going to be a minute, though. You're going to have to stick around to hear that one. This is our Christmas episode, and as such, it's going to be a family-friendly one. So grab the kids and gather around the hearth. <laughs> it ends with the lynching of Santa Claus. I don't know how family-friendly this is. Uh, well, it depends on the family, I guess. <laughs> True. <laughs> if your family happens to be one of those that doesn't allow the children to be exposed to descriptions of violence, nudity, criminal behavior, death, and the word fuck, <laughs> then probably this episode is not going to fall within your definition of family-friendly programming. <laughs> Use your best judgment, I guess. Anyway, I fucking hate Christmas. Why? <laughs> you look so defeated uh, right then. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, every day from 10 till 9 when the stores close is like that horrible part of Sundays. If you get stuck out in traffic after everybody leaves church, it's right. like that all the fucking time. Until a couple of days after Christmas is over, until people get tired of bringing back things that they don't want. And also, mm -hmm. the children are too excited. <laughs> the children are too excited. Yes, children get too excitable. <laughs> too much candy. <laughs> around Christmas time. <laughs> Those damn kids. <laughs> anyway, let's get to it. On December 23rd, 1927, Santa Claus, with the help of three other men, robbed the First National Bank of Cisco, Texas. This robbery eventually led to the largest manhunt in Texas history to that point. By the time this saga reached its conclusion, three police officers would be dead, numerous civilians would suffer gunshot wounds, and Santa Claus would be murdered by a lynch mob consisting of over 1,000 individuals. And that's what we're talking about today. The lynching of Santa Claus. They needed a, they needed a thousand people to lynch Santa Claus. Oh, he, Santa Claus has supernatural power. <laughs> You're not going to bring him down with one man. <laughs> in the 1920s, bank robberies were literally almost a daily occurrence in Texas. This is actually, a bank is actually getting robbed in Texas. More than one bank is getting robbed in Texas daily. And because of that, the Texas Bankers Association had offered a $5,000 reward to anyone shooting a bank robber in the process of the crime. I wanted to lead off with that bit of information because this reward, I think, maybe, is one of the primary contributors to a lot of the insanity that we're about to talk about that happens over the course of this story. So... Two days before Christmas, 1927, Santa Claus appears in front of the First National Bank in Cisco, Texas. There's a few immediately noticeable and peculiar things about Santa on this day. For one thing, his outfit's a little bit half-assed. His uh, red coat, which should be fluffy and lined with even more fluffy white, white fur, more resembles a thin, flimsy housecoat. And instead of fluffy red pants and big black boots... Santa's just wearing regular trousers and loafers. And Santa's lost some weight, too. In fact, he was skinny. 
And probably the most telling problem with Santa was that there were a bunch of children that surrounded him and tried to tell him what they wanted for Christmas, and he didn't even care. Asshole. (laughs) It was like he was making absolutely no effort to remember what these little brats are telling him that they want for Christmas. In fact, later on, when witnesses are talking about this, they pointed out that when Santa walked in to the First National Bank of Cisco, Texas... These kids were following him, and he seemed extremely annoyed by it. Here's our first twist in the story. This man is not actually Santa Claus. (laughs) This man is actually Marshall Ratliff, a man who has already tried to rob a bank one time. He had spent some time in Cisco, Texas. His mother worked at a restaurant there, so he felt like he needed to wear a disguise when he was going to rob this bank. Unfortunately for him, one of many unfortunate things for him that are going to happen throughout the story. He did not foresee the problem of children following him around when he decided to rob the bank disguised as Santa Claus two days before Christmas. So Santa Claus walks into the First National Bank. Everybody's pointing at him. The bank cashiers even say things like, hey, Santa. And uh, for the sake of all these annoying children that are around him, Everyone in this bank is pretending that they actually believe that this person is Santa Claus, even though he clearly is not, which is a fact that goes completely over the head of these children. You really hate kids. (laughs) I'm not fond of children. Because everybody was so focused on Santa Claus, these children around him, they didn't notice that three ornery looking men in the back of the bank had just pulled out pistols. They didn't notice that until one of the men yelled, stick them up. And that's a quote. Mm-hmm. They actually yelled, stick them up when they robbed banks in those days. This is some Bonnie and Clyde shit. <laughs> I wish people still yelled, stick them up. If I ever rob something, I'm going to yell, stick them up. I've been held up. They didn't say stick them up. Are you disappointed by that fact? Yeah. Okay. I'll get on Craigslist, see what we can hook up for you. <laughs> Just find the shadiest possible thing to yeah. buy on Craigslist. A Glock. <laughs> And I'll email the guy. I want to I wanna come take a look at that Glock. Can you meet me in a dark alleyway somewhere? <laughs> I'll be unarmed. BTW, if you decide to hold me up, be sure to say stick them up. <laughs> so including Marshall, Santa Claus, Ratliff, there's four men holding up this bank now. The three others are Henry Helms. He's 31 years old. Robert Hill and Lewis Davis, who is a relative of Helms. So one of these men is watching the door. One of them's doing crowd control to try to make sure that nobody tries to be a hero. And the third man's holding his gun on the tellers because back in the 20s, bank tellers were known to keep pistols, maybe even a couple of pistols, behind the counter. So while this one robber has his gun drawn on the tellers, Santa Claus makes his way behind the counter and starts looking for any guns that the tellers might be tempted to shoot him with. And he finds one. It's a Colt forty-five a rather large gun, and Santa Claus sticks that in his bathrobe. Then, like in all good bank heists from back in the day, Marshal Santa Claus Ratliff commands the teller to open up the safe. Then, Santa pulls from his red bathrobe a burlap bag upon which is written, Idaho Potatoes. Why is that detail so important to you? (laughs) It's a potato sack (laughs) That just doesn't That's not working for you I mean it's sturdy It's burlap Decent stitching If you can hold that many potatoes You can definitely hold the money I think it's actually a good choice I would at least turn it inside out So people wouldn't see that I was Carrying a burlap bag That said Idaho potatoes on it So you're telling me that You think this guy's branding is off Like he really needed to personalize this bag. Well, he's dressed up like Santa Claus. Why not make it green and put some like uh, glittery stuff on it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're already in costume. Didn't this man just get out of jail? I mean, he didn't have time to decorate his bags. I mean, come on. You're being too hard on this dude. <laughs> he could have at least turned it inside out. Okay. That's all I'm saying. Okay. You have to know if you go and rob a bank with a bag that says Idaho potatoes on the side of it, somebody's going to point that out and make fun of you. (laughs) Okay. So in his potato sack, Santa Claus stuffed $12,200 in cash and an additional $15,000 in securities. While this is happening, there is a woman named Mrs. Blazengame 
who starts heading for the bookkeeping room that is in the back corner of the bank. Now, Mrs. Blazingame isn't even there to make any kind of transaction. The only reason she sat foot in the bank is that she is the mother of one of those horrible little children that followed Santa Claus into the bank. So Mrs. Blazingame, with this little kid in tow, darts into this bookkeeping room and out a side door and into the alleyway. One of the robbers should have probably been keeping an eye on that side door. One of the robbers, Helms, I believe, actually takes a shot at Mrs. Blazingame, or maybe at the kid, and misses. And this is going to be the first of a really high number of missed shots in this story. And this woman and her daughter get away. And all they have to do is walk less than a block away to the Cisco Town Hall. Town halls are places that cops are known to congregate. So maybe this wasn't the best bank to be robbing. Because within minutes of pulling out their pistols, there are three cops, two in the front and one in the back of this bank. And Santa Claus and his group of bandits are now surrounded. (laughs) So one of these robbers, Henry Helms, is standing at that side door where Mrs. Blazingame and her child escaped. And he sees these three cops coming up to the bank. And Henry Helms just starts shooting up and down this alleyway to try to keep these cops at a distance. And that brings us to another thing that Marshall Ratliff and his bandit friends should have considered before robbing this bank. And that's that everybody in Texas has a fucking gun. (laughs) Everybody in Texas has a gun now. And this is 1927. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I imagine it's considerably worse back then. Or better, if you were a Second Amendment proponent. Dude, are we going to get into, like, a gun rights issue right now? No. I think we should avoid that completely. No, we are not. <laughs> so by unloading up and down this alleyway, Helms has basically announced to the town of Cisco, Texas, these gun-toting good old boys that there is a bank robbery in progress. As I mentioned in the beginning, the Bankers Association has said that they're going to give $5,000 to anyone that plants a bullet in a bank robber. So the townsfolk living near this bank hear all this gunfire and they get pretty excited and they start loading their pistols and rifles and they head out. And a number of them are actually taking up positions around this bank, trying to get the best vantage point on where these robbers might come out. And not only that, apparently several of these townsfolk have brought extra guns with them in case anybody showed up without one. (laughs) It was actually an interview. (laughs) Like, they were also buying them at the store that was in downtown (laughs) while this is going on to try to just, like, get in on this action. (laughs) Everybody wants in on this. (laughs) One article actually noted that a local restaurant owner showed up without a firearm, and he managed to borrow a pump-action shotgun from somebody (laughs) who had brought an extra one out with them. (laughs) Shoot you a robber. There's like, how many kids are in the bank at this point? (laughs) He's like the Pied Piper. He's brought all these kids into the bank and everybody's just. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out in 1927, children aren't really much help in terms of being human shields. (laughs) We're going to get there. So now those three cops, you know, are really the least of their worries. But they don't know this yet. So Santa Claus and his merry bandits aren't aware yet of what's waiting for them outside. They take all of these patrons and all these bank tellers and cashiers and they herd them into this tight group within which the robbers stand in the middle. Then, shoulder to shoulder, they start moving this wad of humans with three gunmen and a cheap-looking Santa Claus in the center towards this alley door (laughs) where their getaway car is. Now they're thinking... There's no way the cops are going to fire on us while all of these hostages are surrounding us. There's no way the police would fire on a big group of men, women, and children, all of them innocent, except for the four of us here in the middle. And they're probably right about that. Cops probably wouldn't fire on them. But you know who would fire on them? Everybody else in the town. The (laughs) citizens of Cisco, Texas. Because they want that (laughs) $5,000. So they move these hostages out this alleyway door. And 
these Cisco citizens just start raining hell down on them. And these people, these guys are not exactly sharpshooters. They didn't manage to hit the robbers at this point. They did manage to shoot one of the bank tellers in the jaw. Oh, God, I felt so bad for him. Did you see that picture of him? He's just looking all forlorn, and he's just got this gigantic bandage on the side of his face. <laughs> and it wasn't even from a robber. No. <laughs> oh, it was friendly fire. <laughs> There's something like two, 300 bullet holes in the bank, and everyone was saying that was a low estimate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were at least 200 bullet holes in the bank <laughs> shortly after... These bank robbers move these hostages out, and the hostages get <laughs> fired upon by the citizens of Cisco. Um, they also managed to shoot in the leg a Harvard student who was just home for the holidays. So at this point, they have shot two innocent hostages, and they haven't managed to hit any of these four bandits yet. But there's about 200 bullet holes in the side of the bank. <laughs> so Santa and these robbers manage to maneuver this group all the way out to their car, and they decide to take some of these hostages with them. So they open the, the passenger side door and they shove Marion Olson inside, who was that Harvard student who had been shot in the leg. And this is where Olson's Harvard education comes in incredibly <laughs> handy because he very quickly devises and executes this amazing escape plan in which he opens up the driver's side door and runs away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so once that happens, the bandits grab two little girls and shove them in the car. And at one point, Santa Claus is actually firing around one of these little girls at the police and the other people shooting on him on the other side of the escape car. And the people on the other side of the car are shooting back. Santa Claus is using a little girl as a human shield. They're still firing on him. What part of that do you think is more traumatic? Is it just being kidnapped and held at gunpoint by Santa Claus? Or is it the fact that people that you know and see on a regular basis are also shooting at you <laughs> while this is happening. Yeah, I think even at 12 years old, I would I would leave Cisco, Texas after this. <laughs> There's nowhere safe. Santa Claus uses you as a human shield and your own neighbors don't care. <laughs> yeah, they just open fire. That's so a lesson. Basically, you, you're, you can quantify... Your life there, it, it, it is worth less than $5,000. That's a pretty crazy realization to come to when you're like 10. <laughs> so finally, Marshall, Santa Claus, Ratliff, and the three other bandits, and their two hostages, these little girls, they all peel out of this scene. And by this time, the bandit's car is riddled with holes. It's got one flat tire, and there's a hole in the gas tank. A lot of people believe this hole was from gunfire. Other people believe that the bandits had simply forgotten to put gas in the car. And this is kind of in line with a lot of what we're going to learn about these bank robbers later on. Yeah, they're, they're not really planners. They're not, they're, not, they're not great planners. Once they get a little distance from the shootout, they see another car coming down the road. And they realize that if they're going to make it much farther, they are going to need a new ride. Now, at this point... This mob of citizens and police are after them, but the bandits have put a little bit of distance on them, so they have a little bit of time to try to switch cars. So they stop this car that's coming towards them, and this car is being driven by a 14-year-old boy who was chauffeuring his parents around who were also in the car with him. Marshall Ratliff, our Santa Claus, and the rest of these bandits grab all of their loot. They drag their severely wounded comrade, Lewis Davis, towards this car that they're about to get. They point their guns at this car and they tell this 14-year-old boy and his parents to get the hell out of it. The kid and his parents comply and this 14-year-old boy and his mother and father take off through the woods out of sight. So the robbers toss the money into this new car. They shove the profusely bleeding Lewis Davis into the back seat. And by the time they get all this done, this mob and the police are getting really close. They can actually see these people coming up the road. So they're loaded up and they're in a hurry to cut out. And then they realize what a little shit that 14-year-old boy was. <laughs> I like this kid. I don't think he's a little shit. <laughs> you would if you were in the bandit's position. Sure, sure. Because what this kid did 
is he took the keys with him. <laughs> <laughs> so the bandits have thrown all their money, their bleeding friend, or at least associate, into this car. They've still got the hostages, too. They still got the two little girls with them, <laughs> and they can't crank this car. So they've got no choice to get back in the car that they came up there with. But at this point, this mob of people are actually within firing range, and they're starting to unload on these guys. So they very hurriedly load back up into their car that has the flat tire and the hole in the gas tank. They don't have time to get Lewis Davis in the car, and they take off. And then Marshall Ratliff says, who got the money out of the car? <laughs> and everybody starts looking around. Nobody got the money out of the car. So now they've robbed the bank. Two of them are wounded, one of which has been left behind. And they left their money in the car that the 14-year-old pulled the keys out of before he ran off through the woods. <laughs> so now they have no money. They're a man down. They have nothing to show for this robbery that they've just committed. And they just wasted all of this time in which their pursuers were able to get within firing range. And they are still in this busted up car with one flat tire and a hole in the gas tank. They know they're not going to get very far. So they turn down this small country road. And when they're out of sight of the cops and the mob that's chasing them, they go off road. They intend to get this car out of sight and maybe take off on foot through the woods. But this car has a flat tire, and besides that, 1920s Oldsmobiles aren't frequently cited as being capable all-terrain vehicles. So they get stuck. Did you really think about this? An all-terrain vehicle? Yes. 1920s Oldsmobiles. Have you ever heard of anybody off-roading a 19? 20-something Oldsmobile. I'm just trying to imagine how much time you actually spent thinking about how that might be possible. Well, I looked. Uh-huh. I'm not mm. going to talk about how much I looked up about the, uh-huh. the off-road capabilities of 1920s street vehicles. So they get stuck, obviously. And they get stuck with the car still in view of the road <laughs> that they had driven off of who tried to hide their presence from police. So they jump out of the car. They take off running. They leave the two little girl hostages that they had had in the car because these little girls have proven themselves useless in terms of (laughs) body shields because people will just open fire on them anyway, regardless of whether or not there are a 10 and 12-year-old little girl in the car with you. And these three remaining bank robbers head out through this Thick mix of Texas brush and cacti. All three of these guys are in pretty bad shape at this point. Santa has severely busted up his chin and he's got a bullet in one of his legs. Hill has lost so much blood that he actually passes out for a minute but then regains consciousness. So they should be humped at this point. This mob that's chasing them has swelled to include 300 people. Their quote-unquote getaway car isn't hidden from the road that they just came down. (laughs) And, of course, this posse that's chasing them sees the car. So they know that these guys are around here. And these people are still trigger happy at this point. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. They will shoot at anything. (laughs) A bird flies out of a tree. You don't want to be any kind of creature or entity that moves around this posse that's chasing these guys. (laughs) They, They will shoot at anything. But also... They don't hit much when they shoot at it, so or they at least don't hit the thing that they're aiming at. So the only option left to these three bandits is to hide. They are not in the physical condition to actually get away from this mob that's chasing them. And in an incredible reversal of their fortunes, this actually works. They just lay down in this brush, and all 300 of these people that have formed the search party walk right by them. So they just lay still, and nobody finds them. A lot of people come close. They're walking by them, but they don't move. And eventually, this search party disbands, and these bandits start plotting their next move. Obviously. (laughs) Plotting. Because they're so good at (laughs) planning. Yeah, these are very good plotters and planners (laughs) so far. (laughs) So obviously, these guys need to steal a car. Our Santa Claus, Marshall Ratliff, has this bullet in his leg, so he's... 
not really of much use on foot. So Hill and Helms decide that they're going to leave Santa there and walk back into Cisco and try to steal a car. The first place they come upon with any unattended vehicles is actually the staging area for this search party that's looking for them. And in this really ballsy move, they actually steal a car from the same 300-man posse that's chasing them. And they get away with it. This is actually pretty impressive. It really is. They have really been botching this up the entire way. But the fact that they are sneaky enough to steal a car. They do have their moments. Yes. Yeah. They're quite yeah, good yeah. Yeah. at lying very still. <laughs> <laughs> and they're okay at stealing cars. They do have a couple of things going for them. And when they steal this car from the posse that's chasing them, they go back and pick up Santa. And then they take off again. So now they've got this new car that they've stolen from these people chasing them. Uh, but two days later, and I'm not exactly sure how this happened, they managed to wreck the car, having only made it 20 miles north of Cisco, Texas, which is where they robbed this bank. Now, the reason they only made it 20 miles north is that they were taking little winding back roads and off-the-path ways to get away from this because there were people driving all over the place looking for them. I mean, not only police, civilians are out with their guns looking for these guys. So they're trying to stay out of sight as much as possible. I still feel like they probably should have made it more than 20 miles in two days. Um, and I am not sure what happened that caused them to only be 20 miles away, but we're going to find out in a little while. These guys also aren't incredibly great with navigation. So when they wreck this car, they're pretty close to this farmhouse. So Helms walks up to it, knocks on the door, and makes up this story about his wife having been hurt. So the farmer that lives in this farmhouse and also his son and his nephew offer to help out. And so Helms and the farmer, his son, and his nephew all load up in the farmer's car and they head off. Now Helms' plan is from the beginning to steal the farmer's car. So at some point in this ride, Helm pulls out his pistol, and the farmer and the nephew just bell out. But Helms has his gun pointed at the sun, so the sun stays put. Turns out that Helms isn't the only person who had a gun. Guess who else has a gun? The farmer. The farmer. The farmer the f- has a gun. The farmer's the farmer packing heat. But now the farmer's already jumped out of the car, so he has a gun which he is fully intending to use. So he pulls it out, aims it at the car, and he starts shooting. And he doesn't manage to hit Helms, but he does manage to hit his own fucking son in the arm. This is par for the course as far as the story is concerned. (laughs) Yes, I mean, Cisco, maybe they have poor gun manufacturing in Cisco. Maybe all of the firearms sold out of Cisco, Texas have bent barrels. Dude, this isn't Steubenville, Ohio. No. No, I, I don't think that's true. I think that just everybody had a gun. Not everybody knew how to use the guns. <laughs> so Helms, with his farmer's son as a hostage, goes back and he picks up Ratliff and Hill. And after about 24 hours of continuing to do their evasion tactics, where they're driving down these small back roads and slowly putting some distance between themselves and Cisco. They decide that it's time for a new car. Obviously, this farmer has reported his car as being stolen. And they decide they're going to ditch this car and let this young man go. Hold on. Did he report the car as stolen, but not report his son's kidnapping? Or were these things done in tandem? Yeah, I should probably say both of those things. Yeah. I like this idea that this guy, like, shoots his own son and then reports his car as being stolen. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave that. I do like this. Let's so leave think, that part out. I think that's probably not I the shot reality. My own kid. <laughs> I I want to have enough faith in humanity that that was not how that went down. <laughs> I, I I guarantee you, the farmer did not mention that, that he, he shot, shot his, his own, own fucking son. kid when he when he reported that. He was like, okay, he's gonna show up with a bullet wound. <laughs> We're going to say the robbers did it. (laughs) (laughs) Or he had that bullet wound the whole time. He was was born with that. His arm always bleeds. I don't know what's up with it. (laughs) After spending about 24 hours with the farmer's son, who had been shot in the arm by his own father, 
three bandits decide that it's time for a new car, undoubtedly. This farmer who owned the automobile has probably reported it stolen. Hopefully, he's reported that his son has been kidnapped as well. (laughs) And when they decide they're going to ditch this car, they decide they're going to let this young man go as well. So by now, after this full day that they've spent with this farmer's son, the robbers believe that they're somewhere near Breckenridge, Texas, which is well north of Cisco. However, in this past 24 hours of taking side roads and avoiding populous or active areas, they've gotten turned around. They were not actually 30 to 40 miles north of Cisco. They were pretty much in Cisco. (laughs) (laughs) They were right on the outer edge of the same town from which they have spent all this intervening time trying to distance themselves. So when they let this boy go, it doesn't take him very long to make it to the Cisco Town Hall, where he tells these already very keyed-up cops that Ratliff and the two other remaining bank robbers are just outside of town. I wonder if he also told them that the bank robbers don't know that they're just outside of town. Did they still not realize this at this point? They didn't realize this when they let the boy go. They had no idea that they were... Right next to Cisco, they thought they were, they thought they were like 40 miles north of where they actually were. So they've essentially just made this giant circle and gone back to where they started. You would have thought that they would have seen a fucking road sign or something. Did they not have road signs in 1927? Dude, that was way before the New Deal. I don't know the answer to that. I feel like the New Deal is when we really got into road, road signs. signs and <laughs> actual markers and things like pavement everywhere. You know, like I, I, I'm from a very, I'm from a very bad school system. So don't fault me <laughs> for having never <laughs> been exposed to the connection between the New Deal and road signs. I actually don't know if the road signs were not there before. I just think that they were, you know, little wooden things that somebody had made to be helpful. I don't think it was really a uniform deal until uh, the New Deal. Yeah. That's why they call it the New Deal. Well, no, I don't think that's why they call it the New Deal, but okay. <laughs> and do you think that might have been one they of the They call benefits? it the New Deal because <laughs> road signs weren't a deal until then. <laughs> no. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. No, that's I'm so, absolutely not the case. I'm so... Not the case. Uh, well, way to embarrass me and make me feel like a uneducated hick, Jamie. Thank you. Hey, man, I went to a shit school, too. <laughs> Having ditched the farmer's car, these bandits search for another car. At first, they attempt to steal something that's a little bit inconspicuous looking, uh, large enough to hold them all, but they have trouble getting this car to start. The only other car nearby, though, is this little tiny roadster, and it's just a two-seater. So it just has this one bench seat in the front upon which all three of these bank robbers have to sit. So if you can imagine, (laughs) these three guys are all sitting in the front seat of this car. Who do you think they put in the middle? Santa Claus. No, he's totally a window seat guy. Really? Yeah, he's the fucking leader of the group. He's getting the window seat. I'm sorry, is that how you pick how people sit in places? You don't put the... The, you know, the leader of a gang of bank robbers does not sit bitch. Hold on. I'm a little type A. I would think that being in the middle seat would be an excellent way to control the people around you. (laughs) If I'm not feeling about, like, pretty good about delegating, then, yeah, I want to know exactly what both of these assholes are doing while we're trying to do this getaway thing. No. And the con... (laughs) No, no. <laughs> Everywhere, probably except for within the confines of a, a vehicle of some sort, the middle place is where the boss man will be. So if you're walking down the road, probably rat lips in the middle. When you're in a car and you have three people in the front seat, you put the least dominant of the three people in the middle. Unless one of those three people is dating someone and they want to sit next to somebody, but that's not applicable. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait. So, the least important person is in the middle unless someone is dating someone. That's how this works? Well, I mean, unless somebody has some kind of romantic reason for wanting to sit next to somebody that throws this whole power dynamic off. Because it does trump that power dynamic. Man, I would be a terrible part of a heist team. Like, because this is just, this doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Hill sat in the middle. Hill sat in the middle. I'm confident. (laughs) 
You are confident that Hill sat in the middle. Yes, of this roaster. Because Helms is kind of a badass. Ratliff is clearly the leader of the group. Is he really? He's really the leader of the group? Yes, he's the one that dressed up like Santa Claus. Yeah, he's the leader of the group. Let's go with that. He's a shitty leader. So these guys are sticking to these evasive maneuvers of taking small back roads. And this has actually largely kept them out of sight, but it also severely cripples the amount of distance that they're able to travel over time. This farmer's son, who they had just released, I'm assuming told the police about the robber's poor sense of navigation and direction <laughs> direction and really any other <laughs> helpful type of coordination that might be used if you're going to uh, embark on a criminal enterprise. So while the Santa Bandits are slowly trying to wind their way away from Cisco, Texas, again, the police are quickly darting out from Cisco and setting up these roadblocks on down the road. So after a few hours of driving these back roads, they pull up to this country store that they came up on. This store is very near one of these roadblocks that's been set up, and one of these police officers who was manning that roadblock was just standing around outside this little country store. The bandits see this officer. They play it totally cool by slamming on their brakes. And the three of these guys, again, sitting shoulder to shoulder... <laughs> All in the front seat of this roadster, lock eyes with this police officer, and then they throw it in reverse and floor it backwards away from this country store. They know at this point that this officer's seen them. I don't know what they're, you know, like, what are you going to say? I, I, I left my wallet at home. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to go to the store. All three of us were going to go to the store. <laughs> we decided all right in the front seat. We all we all realized right when we were about to pull in that we left our wallets at home. So before long, these bandits are being chased by the police. Santa Claus, Marshall Ratliff, and these guys are indiscriminately firing bullets at the cops who are indiscriminately firing bullets back at them. As far as I can tell, nobody hit anything. And this goes on for two miles. They know that they're not going to get away from the cops by driving this automobile. So they decide to stop by some woods and bail out. And this actually has worked for them previously. They hid in the woods before right, and managed right, to get right. away from 300 people. The last time they pulled this, though, a police officer named Cy Bradford wasn't chasing them. Cy. I really like that name, actually. I do, too. There's some great names in the story. But yeah, Cy. <laughs> Marshall Radliff's not a bad name. No, I know. These are great names. So Bradford's one of these certified badass Texans that I feel like everybody in Texas believes themselves to be. But in reality, there's only a few of them. But Bradford's one of them. Cy is one of them. Yes. Cy Bradford is one <laughs> of them. Because this guy can back it up. And unlike everybody else in Cisco, Texas... He can actually hit things on purpose when he shoots at them. <laughs> when Cy Bradford sees these robbers bail out, he bails out too, carrying a double-barreled shotgun and a pocket full of shells. So Bradford's chasing these guys, and while in full stride and a full-off run, Bradford raises up his shotgun and fires one round at Santa Claus, and Santa Claus goes down. And... Cy Bradford doesn't even slow down. He hops over Santa Claus, who's squirming on the ground with a shotgun bullet in his back, and he heads on after the other two criminals, Helms and Hill. He doesn't manage to catch them, though. Now, there are reports that he actually managed to land a shot on both of them. So you can read some articles that say he fired three bullets, Santa Claus went down, Hill went down, got up, and kept running, and Helms went down and got up and kept running. I'm not fucking buying it. Yeah, this strikes me as just police officer bluster. He did hit Ratliff, our Santa Claus. This guy very likely was a true badass. I don't think he actually hit Hill and Helms with that shotgun, but who knows. Either way, Hill and Helms managed to get away, 
And Cy Bradford goes back to where he'd left the ringleader of this, Marshall Ratliff. Ratliff's still alive, but he's had enough at this point. He's not going to put up a fight anymore. He's been shot in the leg. Now he's been shot in the back by is, Cy Bradford. How many days has this dude just been kind of bleeding? <laughs> yeah, he's been bleeding this whole time. Yeah. He's done. <laughs> yeah. He's done. He's he, he, This is it for him. And it's probably a good thing that Marshall Ratliff did decide to throw in the towel because he is armed to the fucking teeth. This guy, our Santa Claus, has on him five automatic weapons, three cartridge belts, and a shotgun. Now, at this time, this was the largest arsenal that a criminal had ever been known to carry on his person in all of the history of all of the crime in the United States. So now, the largest manhunt that had ever taken place in Texas up to this point begins near the banks of the Brazos River. Never before this have so many Texans and so many of their resources been used to track someone down. The Texas Rangers are dispatched. Every available trained bloodhound anywhere near this area is put onto the scent of Hill and Helms. They even deploy airplanes in 1927. So this is just a decade after the end of World War I. So these would have been those single prop Red Baron style airplanes. On a side note, because when uh, I was thinking about this and I made the connection to the Red Baron, I started wondering if, why. <laughs> the Red Baron thing. Okay. <laughs> Why the Schwann Food Company from Marshall, Minnesota, right here in the United States, would name their pizzas after a World War I fucking German pilot. So I got in touch with them. <laughs> <laughs> Red Baron Pizza first went on sale in 1976. Between 1979 and 2007, Red Baron Pizza was promoted by the Red Baron Squadron. This squadron flew five modified Boeing Stearman Model 75 biplanes, and they performed formation aerobatics at air shows all across the U.S. Their base of operations was at Southwest Minnesota Regional Airport in Marshall, where a Red Baron Air Museum was also located. The Red Baron Squadron, though, is named after the pizza. As it turns out, according to my contact... At the Schwann, according to my contact at the <laughs> Schwann Corporation, Red Baron Pizza is named after Red Baron simply because the founder of the Schwann Corporation was a former pilot himself and really into World War One history. Absolutely no connection. <laughs> Not only <laughs> Schwann Corporation. So these are the people that run like the Schwann's frozen trucks that come to your house. Like once I, a week? Frozen trucks don't come to my house. Every truck that comes to my house is thawed out. So Helms and Hill wander through the woods for several days, and they have a few close calls. Members of this manhunt, this gigantic manhunt, actually get within sight of these two guys, and they somehow manage to not get caught. But they're beat up pretty bad. They haven't had very much to eat except for a few ears of corn that they swiped from a farm. One night, they decide they're going to get out of the elements, and they take shelter in a barn, and they get spotted going into this barn. Before they even know that anybody has seen them, the cops show up. Robert Hill makes some feeble attempt to run, but both of these guys are finished at this point, and they get arrested. So on December 30th, 1927, one week after the robbery of this bank in Cisco, Texas, all three of the surviving members of this cohort that robbed the Cisco First National are accounted for, and they're all in custody. A few weeks after being captured, Ratliff has recovered enough to stand trial. He pleads not guilty, even though he wore a Santa Claus mask during this robbery, considering that the mask had a bullet hole in the chin that matched his own chin injury, and considering that he was captured attempting to run into the woods alongside Hill and Helms, the case against Ratliff was pretty solid. So for the robbery, he gets 99 years, and for the death of the Cisco chief of police, he gets the chair, Old Sparky. Old Sparky. That's what they call it. Helms, likewise, pleads not guilty. He, too, gets sentenced to have a sit-down in the electric chair. 
Hill, though, the youngest of this group at 21 years old, decides to try something different. He confesses to everything he had done, and he tells the jury about how difficult it was to grow up as an orphan, and he tells them that he wants to be baptized. He gets 99 years, but no chair. They haul Hill off to jail, and just about as soon as they close the jailhouse door on him, he escapes. Not for long, though. Uh, He's only out for a couple of hours, and they catch him again and take him back. You know what he does then? He escapes again. Yeah, he escapes again. <laughs> this yeah, he's, time. he's trying really hard. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah he wants to get out. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I like how all of these articles, though, they're like, eventually he just uh, settles down. Yeah, I mean, yeah. how does how do they let him escape just, three times? I mean, just, first of all, <laughs> they just they just executed the largest manhunt in Texas history up to this point for these guys. How do you let this guy get get out three times? Three fucking times he escapes from jail. Apparently, they were not using his talents effectively during this robbery scenario. During the manhunt, I mean, maybe they should have asked him. You said he sat bitch in this roadster mm-hmm. situation. Yeah, maybe they should have asked him what his opinion was about this because maybe they would have been in a different scenario. The man knows how to get out. So after this, uh, they they keep a hold of Hill. And he apparently becomes a model prisoner, more or less. Model enough uh, because he was paroled in the mid-1940s and let free. And he changed his name, and that's the last we ever heard of Hill. So, with Hill gone, Helms concocts a plan to get himself out of this electric chair sentence that he's gotten. He decides he's going to be insane. Uh, You can't electrocute an insane person, not even in Texas. You're not supposed to, anyway. So, (laughs) So, Helms grows his hair out. He looks as wily as he can manage. And then they have this hearing on Helm's sanity in which he rocks back and forth and over and over he chants softly but audibly, ain't gonna sing. (laughs) Okay, disconcerting, but not insanity. Well, it's more than disconcerting because he did this all the way through this hearing and apparently this really got on people's nerves. (laughs) So these annoyed jurors say... Yeah, just send him to the fucking chair. He's fine. <laughs> send him to the chair. <laughs> Old Sparky. <laughs> He's just fine. Get, get him out of here. Yeah, get, get him out, out of here. here. We're tired of hearing, ain't gonna say. <laughs> ain't gonna say. <laughs> Old Sparky for you. And they did. He uh, he went to the electric chair at the state prison in Huntsville just after midnight on the morning of September 6th, 1929. Since no family members claimed his remains... His body was buried on Peckerwood Hill, the cemetery for unclaimed penitentiary inmates. So while Helms is uh, on death row, him and Marshall Ratliff or Santa Claus are on death row together. At some point during his stay on death row, Ratliff ends up with a phonograph player in his cell. And whenever an inmate makes this last walk toward old Sparky, Ratliff plays... When the roll is called up yonder. But when his co-conspirator in this, Helms, takes his final walk to the electric chair, Ratliff doesn't play the song. Helms walks in silence to the electric chair. After that, Ratliff decides that he's going to act crazy, like Helms did. Uh, He knows that this did not work out for Helms, so he has a different plan. Instead of chanting, ain't going to sing, Ratliff chants, Lord have mercy on my soul. He's got this figured out. It was the phrase. The phrasing was the problem. So Ratliff manages to get a sanity hearing by repeating over and over to Lord have mercy on my soul. He gets moved from the penitentiary to Eastland County Jail to await this hearing. And for 10 days, he lays on a cot motionless, claims that he's blind, he can't see anything, and he tells people that he's paralyzed and he can't move. I'm not going to say that the jailers all fell for this, but I'm thinking that after 10 days of this, this guy 
pretending to be in a vegetative state. They kind of got comfortable with it and let their guard down. So one day, there's only two officers working in this small little county jail. A jailer's there and a deputy sheriff, Tom Jones, and they're locking up the prisoners and Santa Claus's cell door is open for some reason. He can see both of these cops and they're down the hallway from where he is. So suddenly, Marshal Ratliff is cured and he bolts down the stairs of the jailhouse. But the front door's locked <laughs> and he can't get out. But at this point, he's fucking committed. He's already ran out of the jail cell. But it turns out that uh, Deputy Sheriff Jones had uh, forgot to take his pistol with him when he went upstairs to lock up the prisoners. He had left it sitting out on the desk. So Ratliff grabs it, and he heads back up the stairs, and he starts shooting. Jones gets shot three times with his own pistol that he had left on top of the desk. This jailer, though, manages to wrestle the gun away from Ratliff and pistol whip him with it. Pretty soon, other officers show up after this ruckus is reported, and Ratliff suffers an unfortunate and immediate relapse in his mental illness. (laughs) (laughs) He once again falls into a vegetative state and becomes incoherent. So... They toss him back in the cell. They search his cell before they toss him in there. But as it turns out, during this little dust-up with the jailer, he'd pulled the keys off of the jailer (laughs) and hit him up his sleeve. In a moment of insanity. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And uh, hidden those up his sleeve, which is actually pretty slick. Um, So they find the keys hidden up his sleeve. He maintains this... this, uh, Facade. Yeah, this convenient relapse. (laughs) And uh, mental instability, even though they find the keys up his sleeve. (laughs) So this deputy sheriff that Ratliff shot was apparently extremely well-liked in town. He was this older man, known to be kind. He had gray hair. People said he was friendly, that he was always smiling, and that he was generally pleasant in his demeanor. So this man that, that Ratliff shot was still alive at this point. But things were not looking good. Word got out that those three bullets that he took were going to do him in. This man's dying. And before long, when word of this gets out, more than a thousand extremely irate citizens are surrounding this jail and demanding that Santa Claus be brought outside. Now, it's claimed that the jailer here at the time, the man who pistol whipped Santa Claus, was trying to calm this angry mob down and he was telling them that uh santa claus is gonna get his comeuppance via the legal system i don't know if i'm buying that that's what all the reports say that this guy was trying to calm the mob down but this is also the guy who just saw his friend shot by santa claus and pistol whipped santa claus in the face so maybe he was just kind of saying the things that he was saying. He yeah, was winking, and then just let him on in. He's just gesturing, come on in, let's get this or guy. Or maybe when the mob shows up, he's like, he's in there. Yeah, but also, like, maybe this guy really did believe in the justice system. Didn't want to lose his job. Oh, he obviously didn't want to lose his job because he told a thousand people to lie for him. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I mean... This is this is 1928 at this point. This guy gives his fucking keys to this mob. And the mob runs in and grab a hold of Santa Claus. <laughs> this is where this, this gets a little unsettling for me at this point. So they grab Santa and they strip him completely naked. I don't know what it is with people back then where... They're always stripping people naked when when they tarred and feathered people. I don't know. There's this public humiliation aspect to people before, say, like 1940 that makes me really uncomfortable with people who existed before 1940. I mean, Texas is a completely different beast than the Deep South. But as far as lynchings are concerned, they got some pretty nasty shit they've swept under the rug, right? Fuck Texas. No, that's not what I meant. I'm just saying, like... You're right, Jamie. Fuck Texas. <laughs> oh, are you going to edit this? So it's like I say, oh, fuck Texas. Yeah, man, that Waco lynching, where they're like, making postcards. 
So they strip Santa Claus completely naked. The article where I originally saw this story, for some reason, made a point of noting that it was extremely chilly that night. They drag Santa Claus about a block down the road where there's two telephone poles between which there is this taut guy wire. Somebody in the crowd happens to have a noose on them, so they toss that over the pole, pull it around Santa's neck, and several men start tugging on the other end of this rope. And Santa Claus goes up into the air, kicking and gasping for air. After a very short time up there, though, the knot that they had tied in this in this noose uh, turns out not to be a genuine noose knot, and it comes unraveled, and Santa falls onto the ground hard because he was several feet up in the air by Seriously. the time that gave way. Seriously, you got a thousand fucking people in this crowd, and you don't say, I mean, you're on an airplane. Somebody goes down, it's like, hey... Is, anybody it, is, know how is there to fly a, a doctor plane? here? Does anyone know how to fly a plane? Whatever. You just kind of do like a, a, a sourcing thing and you decide who is the best person for that. Who tied that goddamn knot? Who tied that knot? Maybe somebody raised their hand. Maybe they did ask and somebody said, I totally know how to tie a noose because I learned it in the Boy Scouts. <laughs> the Boy Scouts that have been around for 18 years at this point. <laughs> somebody should have known how to tie a knot. Yeah, surely somebody in this crowd of a thousand Texans has hung somebody before. Right? Wait, with that logic, the whole shooting thing should make more sense. Surely someone in this crowd must have shot a person before. Oh, so the lesson to be learned from this is that uh, Texans can do things repeatedly and still not be good at them. <laughs> You do realize I still have a Texas driver's license that is going yeah, to well, be revoked after yeah. this episode if you don't edit this properly. No, you know what? <laughs> if you're from Texas and you want to come after us, look up Aberdeen. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to get past them. Seriously, my driver's license is going to be revoked. <clears throat> the lynching of Santa Claus. The lynching of Santa Claus. Let's do this. They fuck up the knot. Yeah, so people near Ratliff when the when the knot gives way and he falls on the ground, reported that Ratliff started murmuring, God have mercy and forgive me. Some of the people in the crowd, I guess, he was, had... He was still holding on to that as a tactic. I think at this point... <laughs> I think at this point he knows he's not getting out of this. All right, all right. I think that this might be a genuine sentiment. This might be the first public genuine sentiment that's really? coming out of Ratliff. All right, that's interesting. I mean, the man's scared for his life. He knows that he's about to die right there. I mean, this isn't an abstraction to him anymore. His number is coming up. He's next. So some of the people in the crowd apparently did have a little bit of sympathy for him because uh, someone comes up and wraps a burlap bag around his waist so he's at least not completely naked. Did it say Idaho potatoes? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you were so obsessed with that. <laughs> so, well, they, they give him this little piece of mercy by at least covering him up somewhat. Uh, but they do go and find another rope. Uh, this time they find somebody who actually knows how to tie a noose. <laughs> and they hoist Marshall Ratliff up again. And again, he's struggling for air and he's kicking. Then someone in the crowd shouts, maybe he wants to talk. And Ratliff says, yes, I'll gasping for air. He says, I, I'll talk if you'll let me down for a minute. Uh, so they do to hear what he's got to say. But in this moment, um, he can't think of anything. And he just mumbles something. Uh, a lot of reports say that he apparently did at least try to say something. Most of the reports say that he just mumbled something incoherent. There are a couple that say that he said something along the lines of, uh, boys, forgive me. Uh, then this mob decides he doesn't really have uh, a, a big, long speech to prepare. He's not going to tell us any details about the things that he's done. So they hoist him up again, and this is the last time. A little bit after uh, they hoist him up, he dies. And this mob leaves him there. 
Marshall Ratliff's body dangled there for about 20 minutes. I was uh, illuminated by the headlights of automobiles that had pulled up and shined their lights onto this scene so that people could see it better. It said that uh, some of these spectators that were around were actually reaching up and grabbing Ratliff's feet and sort of spinning him around so they could see him better in the headlights of these cars. Finally, after about half an hour, they cut him down and they take him to Barrow Furniture Company, which makes not only furniture, but caskets. And they're also the local mortuary. One-stop shopping. (laughs) Get your dining room suit and your casket. Right. (laughs) At Barrow Furniture Company, Cisco, Texas. So after a mortician embalmed uh, Ratliff's remains... They actually exhibited in the retail sales area of this furniture store, Ratliff's body. Supposedly, this was just to accommodate the large number of people with a morbid curiosity who wanted to see this body. I'm thinking the Barrow Furniture Company thought, we get enough people in here, one of them's going to buy a chair. So this modest memorial service for Marshall Ratliff takes place at Shannon's Funeral Chapel on North Main Street in Fort Worth, Texas. The doors were open to the chapel for friends, family members, and curiosity seekers who wanted to see Marshall Ratliff's remains who maybe didn't have a chance to see it at the furniture store. (laughs) (laughs) Damn, I had to work on Saturday. I couldn't make it over (laughs) to the the furniture store to see the... Santa, the dead Santa Claus. <laughs> I'm glad there's a second chance. The day that the people are sitting in this funeral home looking at Ratliff's remains, this funeral's happening on November 24th, 1929, right after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and apparently, by complete coincidence, a local department store has sponsored a Christmas parade which marches right past Shannon's Funeral Chapel. So, right behind these people who are looking at our Santa Claus bandit dead in his casket, a parade goes by, which is concluded by the passing of a Santa Claus dressed fully in a red and white costume, waving to spectators along the street. The story has come full circle. So if you'll remember, during uh, Ratliff's escaped attempt, he, he shot this well-liked officer three times. Mm-hmm. The day after Ratliff's funeral, this officer that he shot three times actually passed away. His last words were to his young son when he said, be a good boy. Oh, that's really disturbing. <laughs> so what happened <laughs> to this gigantic mob of people? who illegally lynched and strung up Santa Claus. District Judge George Davenport ordered a grand jury to convene to investigate this lynching, but none of the 1,000-plus people who were present at the lynching ever stood trial. Merry Christmas. That's going to do it. Thank you for listening to episode seven of Where is the Line? Our theme song is Monster Party. It was provided to us by Jim, 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 Jim. Any additional music that you heard in this episode was provided by Das Krumholtz Project. If you'd like to know more about either of those bands, you can visit our website and check them out on our About page. If you enjoyed the show, go to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review like these fine folks did. Angela Jolly writes, Great pod. Love it, you sickos. We love you too, Angela. (laughs) Ray LeBlanc writes, I recently found your show and I'm really enjoying it so far. I'm always looking for shows that don't hold back and will go into full detail when explaining crazy stories like the ones you've covered. I feel the nice rapport between you guys works well and is strangely calming given the horrific subject matter. Thank you for entertaining me while I'm driving to and from work. Please don't go soft on us. The crazier the better. I love that sometimes uneasy feeling while driving alone at night. Thanks, Ray. This episode might have been a little bit soft, but going forward, we're not going soft. 
Red Sonia 1976 writes, my new favorite podcast. Thanks, Red. Joe says 43 says, was not expecting to like this podcast as much as I do. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Joe Sis. And tell Joe we said hi. Foxfire01 says, I'm enjoying the one episode I've heard so far. Well researched with just enough humor and banter to keep it light. Thanks, Fox. Finally, Liz writes, I don't know if I want people to know that I listen to this. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. <laughs> Thank you so much to everyone who has bothered to subscribe and listen to this show. And we'll see you again soon. Kids, when you go to bed, stay away from your closets and don't look under your